0: If you would turn with me in your Bibles, once again, to Luke chapter 6. We will be reading the same section of scripture as last time, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And once you are there, if you could stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And also gave to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, So he said to him, "Stretch out your hand." And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Be you guys can be seated. Some of you might be wondering why we're in the same text as we were in last week. Uh, surely we've thoroughly covered what that passage and those two passages had to deal with. Uh, but some of you might remember at the start of our time together, I know that was a long time ago, um, I mentioned that we would be dealing more in depth this week with the topic of the Sabbath. Most specifically, uh, what is the Sabbath? And The title of this study together is Lord of the Sabbath. And we're trying to explain or to examine together what exactly does Jesus mean in verse 5 of chapter 6 when he says that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He refers to himself in that case as the Son of Man. I'll just read it to you. It says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And we're going to examine together what that exactly means and what is the Sabbath. What does it have to do with us today? And I must confess in part, uh, it was because those topics together are quite a bit of material to cover, certainly in a, a short span of time. But also I had to buy myself an extra week because I was in great distress as to exactly how we were gonna tackle these texts together. So I bought myself an extra week of time and hopefully uh, the gleanings of that will be of benefit to you as we explore this topic together. Now I go into this uh, with a little bit of trembling because uh, the, What we're going to study tonight, I think, is a faithful representation of the scripture, but it disagrees with uh, church history for about the last three or four hundred years. In fact, I had to go a little bit further back in order to find someone who was a hero of the faith of mine that actually, I think, agreed with me based on their writings, uh, but I'm still not sure. So, but nevertheless, we're going to examine what scripture has to say on this topic. And so I'm going to present that information to you, and we're going to uh, contemplate these things together, most notably with this question in mind. Uh, what does it mean for us as believers to observe the fourth commandment? You remember the fourth commandment out of Exodus chapter 20? We're going to turn there in a moment, but the fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so, what does it mean for us to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy? So, we're going to examine these, this topic together, and we're going to start off with a very low bar question, very low question, which is what is the Sabbath? That's easy enough. And we're going to start there, and we're going to hopefully build ourselves into this topic together. What is the Sabbath? To find the first reference to the Sabbath in Scripture, we're going to have to go to Exodus 16. Exodus chapter 16. Now, this is the first reference to the Sabbath by that name. Some of you might already be aware of an earlier reference to the Sabbath day. But Exodus 16 is the first reference to any kind of Sabbath-keeping of the Israelites. And we're going to be starting out in verse 4 of Exodus chapter 16. And as a forewarning, we're going to be turning in a lot of places in your Bible tonight. So you've been warned. (laughs) Exodus 16, verse 4. It says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it is Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of Yahweh, because he has heard your grumbling against, or sorry, against Yahweh. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you the evening meat to eat, And in the morning, bread in the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So the Lord puts together uh, the Sabbath day for the people of Israel. And in verse six, you will see that uh, the people of Israel are supposed to take a double portion of the, the daily gathering. Sorry, in verse five, you'll see that it's on the sixth day. They're supposed to gather twice as much because on the seventh day, they're not supposed to go out and gather. And it doesn't take more than the end of this chapter before you realize they don't like that command very much, because in verse 27 of chapter 16, you're going to see what happens. It says in verse 27, it says, on the seventh day, this is the first week that they're trying to complete these commands, So in verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people go out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And you'll recognize that not only do they grumble against God for his providential providing of food, and so he he brings them food every single morning, but also they grumble against his instructions on how to go about obtaining that food. And that has to do with gathering on six days and resting on the seventh day, and the people do not like the ordinance of six days of work and a day of rest. And this is not news for us, because if you've been paying attention up until this point in Exodus, uh, the people of Israel are a grumbling people. That's how they're described. But uh, in order to get the the Sabbath mentioned in what we call the Ten Commandments, we need to go a few chapters over into Exodus 20. and We're going to read that full ordinance together. This is uh, the Ten Commandments, very famously in your Bibles. We're going to skip the first three and we're just going to highlight the fourth commandment, which you will find in verse eight of Exodus chapter 20. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who's in your gates for six days, For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here we have included in the 10 commandments, uh, the ordinance of the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And you'll notice that the commands that go before it and the commands that come after it are all commands you're likely familiar with. Uh, You shall have no other gods before me, for example, uh, you shall not make any false images. In verse four, uh, for example, the, the more famous ones that we know is uh, verse thirteen: uh, You shall not murder. Verse fourteen: You shall not commit adultery. Verse fifteen: You shall not steal. Verse sixteen: You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And verse seventeen: You shall not covet. In all of these commands of the Ten Commandments, as Christians, we were aware that these are abiding moral principles that are set before us in Scripture. In fact, if you were to read Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and all of his earthly ministry teaching, and you were to examine that with the teaching of the Apostle Paul and most of the other authors of the New Testament, you would see that all of the commands are repeated, all nine of the commands, save one, which is this fourth commandment that we're dealing with tonight. When Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, he takes the you shall not murder command and he elevates it to say, if you've hated your brother in your heart, you have committed murder. He elevates the, you shall not commit adultery command. And he says, if you've lusted after someone in your heart and you've gazed upon someone in a way that was lustful, you've committed adultery. He elevates the commands. He elevates every single command except for the Sabbath. And you'll notice that in his earthly ministry, one of those favorite things to do is to go on the Sabbath and do things that will bother the Pharisees. He he does a great number of healings on the Sabbath. We've read of two of them in Luke's gospel last week and then again this week. We're going to read about another one in about three years' time when we get there in Luke chapter 14. And if you you read all the other gospels, you'll see that this is not unique to Luke. In fact, Luke has the most narrow accounting of Sabbath day violations of Jesus, so-called violations. Because remember, Jesus is doing things that are not against the law. It's against the code of the Pharisees. And then Jesus follows it up, not by defending really him against the violation of the Sabbath. He says, I am, the Son of Man is, the Lord of the Sabbath day. And so we need to examine more closely what this means. And just so you know, this is not a theological debate. How we answer this question is very important for how we live our lives. And if you don't believe me, flip with me to Numbers 15, verse 32. Numbers chapter 15, and I'll be starting in verse 32 of that text. You have the Sabbath laid before the people of Israel. And in verse 32, you will see it says this. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation, and they put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside of the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside of the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, why do I bring that passage to light? Partly because the Sabbath command, regardless of our view on it and the culture that we have and we live in, is not a command that we ought to take lightly. And I wanna put that before you because how we answer the question of keeping the Sabbath day holy is of great importance in the law. This is not something that we should just blow off. In fact, if you're like me or you're like many of Christians who grew up in America, at least in the last hundred years, you've barely thought about the Sabbath. You haven't considered it much at all and you've never really stopped and asked the question, why is it that the fourth commandment is largely ignored in our culture? So I want to put that before you. This is not something that I'm just trying to bring importance to. In the law, violating the Sabbath was worthy of the death penalty. Indeed, violating any of the Ten Commandments is worthy of the death penalty. So the question of what is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is a day. It is Saturday set before the people of Israel. It's a day without work. On six days they labor, and on the seventh day, the end of the week, they rest. They rest from their toil. They rest from their labor, and they are to commit that day to rest contemplating the things of god the people are not allowed to in this case gather sticks and you might be wondering why was he gathering sticks so he could make a fire to make food to heat up his food so he could eat on that day he's not even allowed to do that and so the sabbath day is a day that the people of israel were commanded to keep holy before the lord so that is answering the question the first one that i asked you which is what is the sabbath day now to bring this back to uh, what we're studying in luke uh, we're asking the question the Son of Man being Lord of the Sabbath, what does that mean for us? And so we've answered the question, what is the Sabbath day or what is it really under the old covenant? And now we're gonna ask the question, what is the purpose of the Sabbath? Not what is it, but what purpose does it serve? What is the, the purpose of the Sabbath being given to the people of Israel? Well, you don't have to go very much further in the book of Exodus because in Exodus 31, that is addressed. In Exodus 31 verse 12, you will answer that question. What is the purpose of the Sabbath? Indeed, there's many of the prophets that agree with this assessment as well. I'm just picking one of these verses uh, so we don't have to look at all of them tonight. We wouldn't have time. Exodus 31, verse 12. says, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and to say, Above all, shall keep my, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord and I sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, the soul that should be cut off from among the people. Six days, you shall, six days work shall be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord." Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and he was refreshed. So to answer the question, what is the purpose of the Sabbath? According to God himself, as he's speaking to Moses, he says the Sabbath, in verse 13, is a sign between him and between the people of Israel that he is their God and they are his people. Another sign that is given to the people of Israel of the old covenant, for example, would be circumcision. It's a sign of the old covenant put between Moses and the people of Israel. But what's interesting is the sign of circumcision precedes Moses and the Israelites. The sign of circumcision is actually given to Abraham. It's only when we get to Moses, and the Ten Commandments that we see the Sabbath being instituted as another regular reminder to the people of Israel of the covenant that they have between God. Observing the Sabbath, therefore, is a regular ongoing practice for the people of Israel to refresh the covenant or to remind themselves of the covenant. It's a sign to them that they are under God and they are his people and he is their God. So if that's true, if it's a sign of the Old Covenant, then the question is, Does that mean that since we're under the new covenant, this sign just goes away? For example, Paul will argue in the New Testament that circumcision is not something that is bound on the people of Israel anymore. So is that true also with this sign of the old covenant? Well, we're gonna look at a series of texts that's gonna address that and we're gonna do that in the New Testament. And we're gonna ask this question as we move through it. So we've asked the question, what is the Sabbath, right? We answered that. What is the purpose of the Sabbath? It's a sign. And the third question will be, are we still bound to it? Are we still bound to the Sabbath? And here we're going to do a survey of the teachings of Paul and the teachings of the author of Hebrews to try to address this question, because indeed, were it not for the New Testament's testimony, it would be very easy for us to be confused on this issue. But I think the New Testament teaches rather clearly on the subject. So Galatians chapter 4 is the first place I want you to go. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 9. And indeed, as we are flipping there, I want to remind you the letter of Galatians is written by Paul to the church in Galatia. And the primary controversy that surrounds the text is a group of people known as the Judaizers. And their whole purpose is to try to teach the people a different gospel. They're trying to add works to the gospel that has been delivered to them. And in verse, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says it this way. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Was it before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? He's asking them, who has bewitched you? Who is teaching you these false things? And why are you departing of the gospel? Why are you departing from it? But if you look in Galatians chapter 4, you're going to see another similar kind of exhortation to the people. In verse 9 of Galatians chapter 4, it says it this way. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, How can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world whose slaves you want to be once more? He's referring to the law. And he says, verse 10, You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Paul, writing to the Galatian church here, is concerned for their prioritization of principles of the law good principles in the law and saying that they observe these things and because they still observe them and uphold them he says verse 11 I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain this is not unique to the letter to the Galatian church as well in fact in Romans 14 Paul says something very similar he says some take one day and count it as more worthy than another day let each one be convinced in his own heart Let no no one be the judge of another because the one who observes the day observes it to the Lord. The one who does not does so to the Lord. And that's a whole controversy surrounding whether the Jewish principles or the Gentile principles win out in the practice of church. But as we are answering the question, we need more convincing evidence to get to a conclusion. And so to do that, I think the most convincing text we're going to look at tonight is Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Again, this is Paul writing, in this case, to the church in Colossa. And in verse 16, it says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in the questions of food and drink, similar to what he says in Romans 14, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These, referring to The drink and the festivals and the new moons and the Sabbath these are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ the substance belongs to Christ now I want to clarify something in the text that might be pointed out there are a great number of people who take this text and say well when he says the new moon or he says the Sabbath they're not referring to the regular Sunday or Saturday to Saturday practice of, of observing the Sabbath, they're referring to other kinds of Jewish festivals that were observed. For example, the Passover or the Day of Atonement, those things have gone away under the Old Covenant, but the Sabbath remains. Remember, the Sabbath is the fourth commandment. But, Paul says explicitly in the text, verse 16, with regard to a festival or with regard to a new moon or with regard to singular, a Sabbath. Referring to what is instituted in the fourth commandment. He says, these things, the new moons, the festivals, the Sabbaths, they are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance of the things to come, the substance is Christ. And what, he, what, he, what is he talking about when he says that to the shadow and the substance, it seems rather confusing. Well, to illustrate it one way, you could say that the shadow is something that is cast by something else. So for example, if you have light behind an object, you will see a shadow cast on the wall or on the floor In front of that thing. And so he's saying the the new moons, the Sabbath, the festivals, they are a shadow of something, but the substance of that thing is Christ, meaning they're a dim, vague kind of picture outline of what Christ is to be, and they go before Christ, but when Christ comes, you're no longer looking at the shadow, right? If Christ walks into the room, you're no longer looking at the shadow, trying to figure out what he looks like, You can look and you can see him and you can see what he's like. Christ is the substance of these things. He's not the shadow. He's the substance of these things. The substance is more significant, more profound, more clear than whatever the shadow was. Now, the shadow does a good job of painting a picture of what the substance is. It doesn't lie, but it's just not as clear of a picture as the thing itself. Christ is the substance of these things. Well, how in the world could days or observing days be a shadow of Christ? How does that make sense? Christ is a person, and we're referring now to days and weeks and resting. Well, in Hebrews chapter 4, we can answer that. So if you'll turn with me to Hebrews, we'll be in chapter 4. Really, a little bit in chapter 3 as well. There's a lot of scripture that deals with this issue in the church. Hebrews chapter 3, I'm going to start there in verse 18 and 19. God is referring to the people of Israel uh, in, in the wilderness. And he's referring to them not being able to enter into the promised land. He says in verse 18, And to whom did he swear, he being God, that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So the people of Israel are not able to enter the rest of God because of their unbelief. They're not able to enter the promised land rest, the rest that is prophesied for them because of their unbelief. But in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8, starting there, it says, for if Joshua had given them rest, now he's referring to chronologically after they enter the promised land, after they conquer it, most of it. It says, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So the author of Hebrews is telling us that the Sabbath was something that was supposed to point forward to a rest that is to be had in God. Verse 9 says So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains some rest in the future for the people of God. And whoever enters that rest, the rest that God provides, has also rested from their own works. They're rested, they've rested from their works and they're resting in Christ's rest, in the rest of God. And in, the, in Hebrews, the, the argument goes forward from this point on into Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10, where it says that there are many things in the old covenant that are a shadow or a type of what Christ is. The priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, foreshadows Christ being the ultimate priest, the priest after Melchizedek. The sacrificial system that the priests offer up, they are a shadow or a type of the ultimate sacrifice that is found in Christ. And even here in verse chapter 3 and chapter 4, the Sabbath rest that is in the Old Covenant is a shadow and a type, a depiction of what Christ is to be. So therefore, those who enter into God's rest have rested from their work. You have to ask the question, in what way does this depict the kind of rest that you can have in Christ? Well, it represents ultimate rest that you would have in God. Rest from all of your works, which is found in Christ when he says that, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I am a gentle and lowly leader, and I will give you rest. Jesus Christ offering up to his disciples rest, ultimate rest, rest in a complete and final sense. And that is in Hebrews. We see this, this picture, this argument that there's shadows and there's substances. The shadows point forward to the substance. The substance is Christ. And Christ is the rest for the people. All of that to say, in that Colossians text, I think it's most clearly articulated. The Sabbath is something that is complete or Shadowed that has passed from the old covenant, but in the new covenant under Christ the covenant that he inaugurates we have a new deeper and more substantive kind of rest that is found and that kind of rest is the rest in an eternal sense the rest from our works from our labors that Christ offers to us Christ is the ultimate sacrifice that is offered Right? The Old Covenant has sacrifices that are due in the Old Covenant. They're not a bad thing, but they're always longing for a more full, complete, singular sacrifice that actually atones for sin. The Old Covenant priests, which work on the Sabbath, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, actually, the, the Levitical priests can even violate the Sabbath. The whole point of that being that if, it, if it's a moral law, the priests wouldn't be able to violate it. The priests aren't exempt from committing murder, committing adultery. They're only exempt from this one part of the command, which is the fourth one. They're, not, they're allowed to violate the Sabbath day. And the reason they're allowed to commit that kind of violation is because they're committing regular offerings on that day to satisfy the, the burden of sins for the people. And then the last picture that we get is that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment not only of the sacrifices, not only of the priesthood, but he's also the fulfillment of the Sabbath day rest. Those who enter into Christ's rest, rest from their work, and therefore the work is complete. They rest from their labors, their self-righteousness, and they rest in Christ. That's the picture. Now that might address for us something you might have been thinking about earlier, which is in Numbers 15, it's kind of harsh when the people of Israel stone that person to death for gathering sticks. Until you understand that the picking up of sticks and the Sabbath day in general is a picture or a type, a foreshadowing of Christ. And then God says that you can't violate this picture at all. It's the same thing he does with adultery. If you, if you violate the picture of the marriage covenant, you're lying about Jesus and the church and you're lying about what God does for his church and therefore that is worthy of capital punishment because it violates the picture of who God is and what he came to do. Same thing with the Sabbath day. If you violate the Sabbath day, it's not so much about working on the day so much as though you can't even add, as Don Whitney says, a stick To the work of christ you can't do any kind of work and somehow think that that qualifies within the realm of adding to christ's work because christ's work is final his rest is ultimate he is the substance of the things the old days were shadows and christ is the substance and indeed he comes more acutely into focus as we get to the gospels and he violates the sabbath day many times to commit healings and to do mercy ministry And to generally tell the Pharisees this kind of answer, that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the ultimate expression of what the Sabbath is all about. He is the rest that the Sabbath was always pointing to. And so the rest is found in him. So to answer the question, are we still bound by the Sabbath day? No. As believers, the Sabbath is not a binding part of the covenant. Indeed, we have nine of the Ten Commandments repeated for us in the New Testament. And so we don't import them over just because they're part of the Ten Commandments. We believe them because Jesus teaches and even elevates many of them. But the Sabbath principle is one of the commands that is not repeated in the New Testament or emphasized or underscored. Indeed, if you were to read the New Testament letters and you were asked the question, how could Paul most simply have settled the issue if the Sabbath indeed was still in effect. He would have just started teaching the Gentile believers to observe the Sabbath. He could have done that with circumcision as well. It would have settled a lot of the controversies going on in the early church, but instead, Paul is threading the needle between the Sabbath is holy and yet the Gentiles don't need to observe it because it's part of the old covenant, it's not part of the new. Same thing with circumcision. Circumcision is great. Being under the old law was great, but the new covenant is better. The new things are better and they need and you need a new kind of kit to understand the new things indeed that's what we learn at the end of luke chapter 5 that there's this new wine and there's these new wineskins, and you can't take the new wine and put it in old wine skins because it's it's just not going to fit and christ is saying that even more concretely now that the sabbath is part of that old kit the new kit the new thing that we have is found very concretely in the person of jesus christ so we are not still bound under the sabbath regulations so then the fourth question and the one we're going to spend a little bit more time on is how do we observe the sabbath Now that might seem counterintuitive because i just said we're not bound by the sabbath but i think it's a good question to ask because all of the ten commandments carry over in some way or another we observe for example you do not commit murder by battling hatred at the heart level that's one of the ways we observe that commandment and we wrestle against flesh and blood for that end, But the question of how do we observe the Sabbath, how do we observe the fourth commandment, is, I think, a worthy question, because if we've just said that Christ is the substance, he's not the shadow, he's the substance of it, then the question becomes, okay, in what case ever in history has the substance been less than the shadow? The substance is always more than the shadow. So if we observe the shadow, how do we observe the substance? How do we observe the thing that it was pointing to? How do we celebrate and rest in the work of christ in a way that honors and recognizes the fourth commandment how do we in other words observe the sabbath and to answer that question we need to first ask a historical question which is when did it flip from saturday to sunday because many of you might be thinking i didn't even know the sabbath was on saturday because you grew up in america (laughs) Uh, The Sabbath is always uh, a Saturday throughout Jewish history. It's the last day of the week, the seventh day of the week. The Sunday is the first day of the week. What we call Sunday is the first day of the week. So the question is, when in church history did that flip from an observance of the Sabbath, Saturday, to an observance of Sunday, what we would call the Lord's Day? And there's a bunch of places in Scripture we can look, and there's many things that we can look at. um, But I just want to reference a few of these accounts. First and foremost, Jesus Christ raises from the dead on the first day of the week. You remember that he's buried on a Friday. He stays in the tomb for that Sabbath. And then he comes back from the dead on the first day of the week. He resurrects from the grave the first day of the week. And the women are, we're told this because the women prepare spices on the first day of the week and they go early in the morning to go see him. And they're told by the angels, he's not here, he's risen. He's not in the tomb anymore he's gotten up and he's gone and he actually beats them out of the grave they get up early he got up earlier and he beat them out of the grave and he beat them to the punch on the first day of the week not the last day of the week and this begins for us a pattern in the early church of what we would call the lord's day or the observance of sunday as the day of worship as opposed to saturday being the day that the jewish people would have typically held in reverence and respect And it's important for us to hone in on that because the Jewish people are under the law and if they're going to battle over circumcision, it would be strange for them to not battle about other tenets of that law, but they seem to very quickly flip from a Saturday kind of observance to a Sunday kind of observance. As a matter of fact, as early as the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we see the Jewish people gathering together on that day, and that is the first day when the church is inaugurated, the Spirit falls on them. Another day that is also a Sunday. Jesus raises from the dead on a Sunday, and also the Holy Spirit falls on the people at Pentecost on a Sunday, Pentecost being 50 days after the day of Easter. And so it's, uh, it's 50 uh, days after the start of the, um, the Passover meal, and so that's how you can chronologically time that out. So the, the Pentecost day when the Holy Spirit comes is also a Sunday. And so the early church has these significant two events happening both on a Sunday. And then you, see, you begin to see, incidentally in the New Testament, people gathering on the first day of the week as opposed to on the last day of the week. One of these examples is at the end of uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 16. He says, when you gather together to break bread, take up an offering on the first day of the week. He says that in 1 Corinthians 16, verse two. He says, when you gather together. But an account that I think is more interesting is in Acts chapter 20, and I would like to turn there with you. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. Remember, we're asking the question, how can we observe the Sabbath? Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, you'll you'll notice it starts out with these words. It says on the first day of the week, referring to what we would refer to as Sunday, when they were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room when they were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus was sitting at the window. He sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up as dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him into his arms he said, "Do not be alarmed, for there is life in him." And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them for a long while until daybreak, and so departed. In verse 12, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. And that's a confusing way of saying in the ESV that they were in fact comforted because Eutychus is now alive. But what's the point of what, uh, what I'm bringing to your attention? Well, first observation of this text is that it's the first day of the week that they're gathering together. In fact, Paul is in Troas and the first mention that we get of him is it's the first day of the week that he's gathering with the saints together and they're gathering to break bread. And that's a, a euphemism in Acts or a figure of speech that, that lets us know that they're gathering together to have the Lord's Supper together. They're gathering together on the first day of the week to break bread. And part of this observance together is that Paul is going to now talk with them. And he talks with them what seems to be a monologue for a long period of time. We would later begin to call these sermons and expositions of scripture. And Paul talks with them intending to depart on the next day. And you see, he's talking so long, he gets so caught up in what he's talking. He talks from the morning of the first day until midnight that night. And he puts Eutychus to sleep. Eutychus falls out the window. Eutychus is raised from the dead and then after Eutychus is raised from the dead verse 11 Paul had gone up again and now he's breaking bread now they're eating together and he converses with them even longer until daybreak the next day and so you have a picture of the early church gathering for worship and what you have is a full day long service the Lord's supper a miracle and then Paul departing and going elsewhere But it's notable that they do so on the first day of the week. And this begins to bring together a body of evidence for why we can understand that the church moves from a Saturday observance to a Sunday observance. Now, it's worth noting that these are all things that we're noting from the text. There's no command in Scripture that Sunday replaces Saturday. Or Sunday is now the Christian version of the Sabbath. Sunday is a different thing altogether. It's the Lord's Day. It's a day of observance. And if you're wondering where that term the Lord's Day comes from, it comes from Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. And, it said, and John is writing from the island of Patmos and he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And it's very easy to understand what he's referring to because it's the day Jesus resurrected from the dead. It's the day Jesus sent his Spirit down on the early church. It's the day that the early church has gathered uh, now to remember Jesus Christ. And John from the island of Patmos is towards the end of his life. And so now it's just being colloquially referred to not as the first day of the week, now it's just being called the Lord's day. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day. He's giving us a chronological uh, picture of the events. And so we have the early church being a church that gathers on the first day of the week in remembrance of what Jesus did when he resurrected from the grave. And now we're beginning to form a picture of what it means to observe the Sabbath. Because if the Sabbath is a shadow and Christ is the substance, then whatever Christ did is something we wanna observe as a remembrance or as a sign or as a picture of observing the fourth commandment. If we want to observe the fourth commandment, we have to observe Christ. And if we want to rest in Christ, we have to rest and worship in him and what he did. And that is by the church rested in and, re- uh, and worshipped on the first day of the week. That's just historically true. That doesn't mean that any other day of the week isn't viable. But if you were to go to any church around the world, by and large, the pattern that transcends culture, that transcends language, that transcends time and space is gathering on the first day of the week. Now, that doesn't mean that Sunday is somehow more holy than other days. It just became the tradition of the church. Indeed, any day would be viable for worship because we're not under the old covenant law that says this one day that's very specific is the day of rest. But we are exhorted to observe the Lord's day or to rather observe what Christ did in his finished work by resurrecting from the grave and conquering sin. And we enter into his rest as the substance of that shadow. And so we observe, therefore, the Lord's day. Now that's why, as a church, we gather on Sunday. That's what the whole deal is for this day. It is a day where we gather to remember what Jesus did. We celebrate the the good news of the resurrection. We look at scriptures together and we try to learn more about God. And then we partake in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, similarly to the Sabbath of the Old Covenant, being something we regularly observe on a periodic basis. The Sabbath is a regular reminder of the Old Covenant for the people. Circumcision is a one-time reminder. And we have similar things in the New Covenant. We have baptism as a one-time reminder. And we have that regular reminder of the covenant in the practice of taking the Lord's Supper. And all of these things come together to help us understand in what way can we best observe Sunday, the Lord's Day. In what way can we regularly rest in the finished work of Jesus and we can enter into His rest. Now, a few questions that might come up with this. Uh, is there any value in the pattern of work and rest as established in the six days on, one day off principle of the Sabbath day? Is there any value in that law, even though we don't, we're not bound to that law in terms of if we violate it, it's not sin? Well, yes, certainly there is value in that because, as I mentioned earlier, there's an even earlier reference to the, the resting on the seventh day of the week. And that rest day is referred to in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you see God makes the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, God rests. And he rests at the start of creation before the fall. And when Jesus is addressing a Sabbath controversy in the book of Mark, he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And what he's basically saying is the Sabbath, the rest idea, is a wonderful idea for creation. The whole purpose of rest is that we admit that we are creatures. Now, this is under the same kind of category as being wise, not being uh, legalistic about anything. So the, the point is this, is that if you're in creation, you're under this pattern of work and rest. And if you're under human creation, that pattern is underscored through the moral law of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament that there's this regular pattern of work and rest and work and rest. And so the question becomes in what is a way that we can rest, not legalistically, but rest in a way that is honoring to the Lord in a way that rests from our works in a very real sense. Well, we we, we can't just copy and paste what they did on the Sabbath and put it on Sunday, because we've already described that's under a different covenant of rules. But we can draw some principles out from what it looks like to rest in a really real and substantial way. The first thing I want to point out is that in that pattern, there's six days of work. And there's one day of rest. And the point of that is that if you live in America, we live under a covenant of five days of work and two days of rest, whatever you might think of rest as. And so we even have a distortion that leans more on the side of rest than even God puts forth in his creation. But rest is a good thing, glorifying to God, because we are creatures and we acknowledge that as we rest. So for six days the pattern is to work. And on the seventh day, the the pattern is to rest. And rest, not only just doing anything, but rest, observing Christ and his finished work. And so then how do we do that day of rest? We don't want to rest in such a way as to uh, pretend like any any kind of leisure is rest. If you're familiar at all with professional sports and uh, professional athletes and how they train and they prepare, one of the things they'll tell you is it's not just how they train that matters, but it's also how they rest. They have to rest in such a way as to actually recover for the next training session or the next competition or the next uh, fight or game that they're participating in. They have to rest in such a way as to actually get ready. So their rest is intentional to allow them to do more work. And I think that's a good picture for us of how Christians ought to rest. We don't rest and throw caution to the wind and do whatever we want because in a real sense that could make the rest more harmful than it is helpful. For example, let's say you had a professional athlete they're training for a race, and they're supposed to rest, you know, a few days beforehand, so that they can be fresh, ready to run the race. And for those few days, they just eat junk food, they sleep all day long, they completely throw themselves off of all their training regimen, and then they show up to race day. They're going to be less prepared after that season of rest than they would have been if they rested intentionally for that race. And I think as Christians, we can learn a little bit from that truth, which is how you rest will help you to work. And the kind of rest that you get is important for the kind of work that you're called to do. If you're part of the kingdom of God, your work is such as putting forth the kingdom onto this earth. You go forth and you share the gospel, you cultivate the world, you subdue it, you conform it into the image of God as you are an image bearer of God. And so you work and you have this very high demand on your work. And if you're gonna work for six days, you need a day to rest. But the day of rest doesn't mean watching TV all day and sleeping in and eating whatever you want. Indeed, those things could be helpful if you have, for example, let's say a manual labor job or you work with your body. But if your regular nine to five job is to sit all day at a computer, your rest day might wanna look a little different from that in order to refresh you for the work that's ahead. And so as Christians, we are to rest in such a way as to prepare us for the work ahead. The old covenant is you work and then you rest and you work again. The new covenant is you rest and out of this rest, you work. Out of this refreshment from Christ, you work. And so the day of rest for many New Testament believers is a day where you contemplate Christ and you consider the things of him and you you rest in his finished work and you think high thoughts about God that will allow you to enter your week in such a way as to actually work to the glory of God. You rest in such a way that it becomes refreshing to you rather than a burden to you. Your rest matters for your work. In the New Testament, how we rest matters for how we work. And if we're going to work for six days, we need to rest. Another thing that Don Whitney says uh, when he he deals with the topic of Sabbath rest, he says that if you're working seven days a week, you're probably not working hard enough. The point that he's making is actually pretty straightforward. If you were to ever meet someone who's, Uh, who's working and they can work all day long every day, the first thing you would ask is how intense really is that work? Because if you can do that all day every day, you're probably not pushing yourself hard enough. But if you are pushing yourself hard enough, as you ought to, you will need a day of rest and a day of recovery. You will need time off of that work in order to refresh yourself back towards that work. So if you can work seven days a week, one of two things is true. Either you're not working hard enough or You are working hard enough and you're running a ticking time bomb down until you are going to burn out those are the two realities and if you know me you know which one i'm going to land on there so the the exhortation to you as a church and even to me as i was studying this text is to really consider the pattern of work and rest set forth in creation not because we're under the old covenant and we need to legalistically follow that law but because it's a pattern set forth as a good blessing in creation that tells us that when we rest, we rest and we say that our work is dependent on God. We're dependent on Jesus to sustain our work. We're dependent on him to bless our ministry. We're dependent on him to bless our, our work on our nine to five jobs. And so if all of those things are true, and we actually believe that we're dependent on Jesus for those things, how we work and how we rest will reflect that reality. And so when we rest, we rest to the Lord. Our day of rest will be one where we offer it up to him and we say we need him to sustain us further. We need him to rejuvenate us. And he can give us recreation to do that. He can give us leisure. He can give us fellowship. But the day of rest is a day for the Lord. And typically for the church, that has been a day where the church gathers together. The church worships God. The church listens to teaching about the Lord to refresh their minds. The church fellowships together to rest from their worldly relationships and rest in the community of believers. And they refresh themselves and then they go back out into the workforce and into the world and they are launched for the mission. But the kind of rest that you do is not a rest of sleeping in all day and eating junk food. If that's what the day requires, that's what the day requires. But that's not a good standard pattern. Because you can rest in that way and not be refreshed. You can rest in that way and not actually be rejuvenated for your Monday workday. You can rest in such a way as to put yourself in a worse spot than you were when you left the work week on Friday. And so how you work, and if you want to work in a way that glorifies God, you need to also rest in a way that prioritizes Him. So that he will go forth and bless you but the ultimate picture of these things is one that we can't skip over which is that if the rest is in christ jesus and it's his finished work that we rest in then we have to reason out that the correct observance of the sabbath the correct observance of these things is to rest from our work and what that means ultimately is we rest from our self-righteousness that we try to add to the work of jesus christ in the same way that the israelites can't even gather sticks on sunday because that's deserving of death, so also is deserving of death adding works to the finished work of Jesus because you're taking an ultimate kind of beautiful rest and you're trying to distort the picture by saying you can add work to it. That's what Paul says when he says he's labored over these Galatians in vain possibly because they think that they can add to the works of Jesus by adding to the observance of the rest. They think they can add to Christ with good things. These are not bad things that they're doing. These are good things that they're doing, but they're doing it thinking that they add to the rest of Christ. But for Christians, it says that there remains a Sabbath rest for us, an ultimate rest in Christ Jesus that we can't contribute to, that has been purchased for us, that Jesus has gone ahead of us for. He's secured it. And our job is to rest. That's the exhortation to new covenant believers. And so we need to consider these things carefully because how we rest, we rest to the Lord. As Paul says in uh, Romans 14, he says, if you observe the day, observe it for the Lord to His glory. Whether you eat or you drink, do all of these things to the glory of God. And that's the ultimate exhortation that we have as New Covenant believers. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the rest that we have in you. Lord, I thank you that we are not dependent on our own work, on our own merit, on our own actions. To somehow secure salvation for ourselves lord i thank you that you have taken the burden off of us and you have gone before us and you've placed it on yourself and you've accomplished something that we could never accomplish lord i pray that you would help our rebellious hearts to rest in you to find some kind of rest from our work some kind of rest from our pursuit of self-righteousness some kind of rest from our labors that's ultimately only found in you lord i pray that your rest would be refreshing to us that we would have a desire to partake in that rest and lord that we would experience the joy and the refreshment of that kind of rest as we fellowship together and we worship you lord i pray that we would uh, continue in observance of what you've done on this day as we continue in our time of worship together that you would loose our hearts and our minds uh, to be able to continue to elevate your name Uh, in worship. Lord, we pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.